Shall I tell you what's out there? Yes, please. The dragon. A beast of such power that if you were to see it whole and all complete in a single glance, it would burn you to cinders. Where is it? It is everywhere. It is everything. Its scales glisten in the bark of trees. Its roar is heard in the wind. There are other worlds. This one is done with me. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the IMMP, the Intermillennium Media Project podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and I've made him watch another movie. Oh, goodness, this one. <laughs> it's a new month, and it's a new, uh, a new theme. Da, 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 da. And we watched a movie that was released in April of 1981. So 41 years ago this month. Oh my goodness. Not, we're, we're, we are really that exactly on time for some and of these films. This one I kind of planned. Sometimes we okay, get them weirdly, uh, uh, weirdly timed inadvertently. But I knew we wanted to do this movie. I looked up when it was released and I thought, yeah, that's a good April movie. Okay. I, I can kind of see it. And this is a movie directed by John Borman. Also known for such classics as Zardos. Goodness. <laughs> but this movie from 1981 is Excalibur. Excalibur. Oh, goodness. I, I, I've heard of like a bunch of little bits of like I've, I've heard of the, this director. I've heard of some of these actors. I've seen them in some other things. I'd never encountered this film. So this was your first time seeing this? My first time seeing it, knowing that they'd made this version, and then seeing the runtime and being astounded. <laughs> this this fil film is... My goodness. It's 141 minutes, but it its runtime compared to its watch time feel different. <laughs> it does feel like it takes... Like it's shot in real time. Like it has taken decades from beginning to end. Oh, yeah. And that's because it's trying to summarize, like, the entire Morty to Arthur, the entire story of King Arthur, in a single film, which is kind of wild to do. And it's not the only movie ever to try to do that, or the only uh, adaptation ever to try to do that, but you can you can feel the earnestness, the the striving to get this complete. There's nothing they really want to leave out. And, yeah. And and yet it is a weirdly episodic movie. Now, Lamar Darters is, is kind of episodic too. It's stories assembled into this saga. But there are so many like, well, this part is done. Let's fade out and fade in five years later or whatever it is. And, and I mean, I admit, I learned about Arthurian legend a little in school. It's one of those you know, classical pieces of literature and foundational mythology in terms of storytelling for Western audiences, you've got to kind of encounter at some point. I've learned a lot more since then in terms of like going down the rabbit hole, researching the references that card games or other things are making to it. Or 
I get to reference one of the things I love, watching a whole lot of overly sarcastic productions, summarizations of Arthurian legends and stuff like that. But it's like, knowing what I know about that, it's not even consistent when you look at the the thing they're referencing. It's a series of disconnected stories where people are throwing in a character Lancelot because they like the idea of the guy and stuff like that. So the fact that this is polishing it down to this cohesive, continuous narrative is interesting, but also feels like this Herculean task that they attempt. And they've got to use those kind of cutaway things and that episodic style that you're describing, because it's not like all of this was written at one time in one clean, unified structure to begin with. So those are the stitches they're using to piece this thing together. And I think that, that Borman really did set out to make this a, a generation's depiction of the Arthurian legend. Oh, yeah. He, he intended, and I think this is true of most of what he does, he intended to make something big, he intended to make something that said something significant. I'll hold off on, on whether I think he succeeded, but you can definitely see the ambition in every frame of this movie. Oh, yes. And yet, it is a movie that takes itself very seriously. Oh, goodness. It is not necessarily a movie in which every single person in the movie takes it seriously. No. But sometimes that's because that's what the character calls for. They're always suited to the character. Exactly. Um, There's movies that we break down because we're describing the entirety of the plot or the structure. We're talking about episodes of a TV series. This is one where we're going to have to go kind of by section and character. I think so. And I'm going to want to suggest we start with one of the two main characters of this film. Yes. Excalibur itself. I'm with you. The sword is actually the first main character. It's not Arthur. It's not anyone else. It's the sword because it's the named character for the entire film. And it's the thing that goes through the entire narrative of this movie. Excalibur is there in one way or another. From beginning to end and that's kind of cool and i like some of the stuff they do with the way they're doing excalibur by making it actually a kind of plain looking sword it's plain looking and yet it's always shot and especially lit in a way that shows its significance it always has this magical green light to it oh yeah and and you're right that's very telling in that they they named they, they didn't name this after king arthur they named it after the sword because the sword represents an idea and an ideal that the characters aspire to, attempt to serve, fail to serve in various ways throughout the story. So I thought that was a good choice. Naming it Excalibur, and as you point out, making the sword really a character we follow. There's versions of Excalibur the sword throughout popular culture where they are the most giant oversized things the most fancifully bejeweled weaponry glowing with power and this one it's a golden hilt with a rather plain pommel and then you tilt it and it flashes green a little in an otherwise amber lit room and you're like okay something's up with it but it's nicely it's utilitarian in a way I never expected to call the sword of the King of England. And I think that's important, too, because this is not a sword that is so incredibly powerful to fight with 
that it allows you to vanquish your enemies and therefore you're going to be king because you're able to kill people better. This is a sword where the fact that you have been chosen to wield it, the fact that the sword has come to you, is recognized by everybody who needs to recognize it as a sign of your true kingship. Yeah. And at the beginning of the movie is this the prologue with Uther and you know, trying to unite England and be its king. And it's it's and even he, even he recognizes it's fine. I'm winning these battles, but Merlin, you promised me a sword. I need Excalibur in order to be king. And we've mentioned him now, so that's our other main character. I want to point out, it's Merlin. Yes, this is the this is much more the story of Merlin and Excalibur, and it happens to weave its way through the reign, the rise and fall of of Arthur. Because they are involved with it. But really, if you look at it, really the way this depicts it is that Merlin kind of lets this sword out into the world because he's made this deal and then is kind of floating in and out and following along with what the what this sword goes through. Until he knows it's reaching its end and he's following up as well. Those two are connected in a way, and it kind of becomes the story of them journeying through history, because they're also the two immortal things. We tend to think of Merlin as a character in the Arthurian legends as an advisor to Arthur. But really, this is depicting him as a servant of Excalibur. And through Excalibur, or maybe he's a servant of Excalibur because he is a servant of England as a land, not as a kingdom— not as a nation, but as a, a land. And he very much represents the old religions, the old ways. And it's very explicit in the way he talks about the way things are changing. And Arthur represents the rise of Christendom and the new age of men. He's also, though, I just gotta say, he's also played by Nicole Williamson with, like, the most amazing energy I've seen in anything. Okay, this is where I, we stop getting somber about this this very serious film. And I just say, say my wild statement for the film this time. This is a Merlin that would have, like, a TikTok account. He's got this, like short burst, high energy, wildly weird delivery kind of style. It's like, you come over to him and you say like, everything's on fire. And you do not know whether his response is going to be, I'll get the water. It'll be, yes, I set the fire. Or it'll be, oh, would you look at that? And he keeps doing what he's doing. <laughs> All three of those are possible. And there's a thousand ways he could say it. And you'll never be able to guess which one. That would be an instant follow. Yes. A, a Merlin TikTok with this Merlin. Nicole Williamson, he seems to be in a different movie than yeah. everybody else. He's got a different energy, a different style, a different tone. And that's absolutely correct. Yes. He is from a different world. He is a different kind of being. So he shouldn't be in the same movie. He's kind of moved passing through the rest of this movie, but he's on a different plane. I am a huge fan of like the the characterization in fantasy popular culture of this studious alchemist sitting in their lab with all their charts and everything and their books 
creating these magical things. That is never what a Merlin should be if you read the stories or if you know anything of the core. He is absolutely supposed to be the wild British druid. He is supposed to be wandering guy through the woods who can mess you up if you step wrong and the, the the people in charge are actually the people who realize that and don't step wrong to him and it's it's perfectly played there because everyone else is serious and heavy and he just walks through a scene like he's aware what's styrofoam <laughs> and i love it and he frustrates the characters he's supposedly advising because he's never there when they want him to be there he's always showing up when they really don't want to see him but he's always there when they really need him to be, whether they like it or not. Yes. And to skip ahead a little bit, when we see Camelot in its full flower, that's when, yeah, there are rooms devoted to chemistry and astrology and all these sciences. And I have no doubt that that's supposed to be presented as Merlin's influence on Camelot as a center of culture, not just of government. But that's not who Merlin is. That's a t th These sciences... And arts are tools that he might use when it's appropriate, when they are the right thing at the right time. But he is about the land and nature and the country and the fact that we're all passing through it. Yeah, we see him when he's in Camelot during its heyday. We see him standing off to the side, looking over a railing, practically inventing popcorn just to watch the drama happening around this big old circular table this kid has gotten himself or himself and sat his buddies around or wandering out into the woods and like kind of just looking at like going into these underground caverns and such which are all moss and lichen and crystalline structures and he's like like going out and checking on how the land is doing because Whatever the stuff happening around this table is, is in immediately showing up in how the the trees and the plants and the land is responding because of the connections that has been made via Excalibur. So yeah, probably my, my favorite character in this by far. Oh, yeah. Is uh, Nicol Williamson's Merlin. From there, I guess we've, we've got to kind of go over some of the major players of the sections of Arthurian myth they go through, but they go through all of them, so there's a lot. There are a lot. We don't necessarily have to touch on all of them, but like I mentioned, they begin with the story of Uther, Pendragon, and Igraine, uh, and how Uther's lust for Igraine causes him to destroy the, the unity that he briefly achieved. He destroys it within one day. <laughs> and in doing so, begets Arthur, who is taken away by, by Merlin and fostered off to uh, Sir Ector and raised as a squire. Which does also lead to one of my, my new favorite sword in the stone moments ever. Because as... As Uther is being slain in battle, he's like, no one else will take Excalibur. No one else shall claim the kingdom that I have forged here. And he plunges it into the stone. At which point Merlin is just like, well, whoever pulls that out is king of England. And that becomes the thing. And we jump cut to years later where tournaments are being held to see who can get a chance to pull the sword. Now, this is one of the versions in which Excalibur and the sword in the stone are the same blade the same item right they are and not not true in not every true. version but they do a good job of 
of tying them together in the way that you just described. It it works for this story for them to be the same, because as you said, this is the story of Excalibur, so it has to have that continuity. Excalibur, in if in a lot of modern cinema, we've got a lot of superhero stories, and plenty of superheroes have had more than one origin episode, origin comic, as they get rebooted and revamped. This is Excalibur's superhero movie, and they figured out how to put all of his origin comics into the same narrative. So we get multiple different origins of Excalibur. But the sword and the stone getting to be one of them, I absolutely loved. Arthur pulls the sword out. Every, like, people are, like, like, the couple of people are like, what? Did you just actually, <laughs> what? And his dad is there, put it back, put it what back. are you doing? <laughs> and he slides it back in with this almost like, oh, shouldn't have done that kind of comical moment. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of Arthur as Urkel sort yes! of moment. Oh, did I do that? Is absolutely the tone this sets, and everything is so serious. But we get this highly comedic scene where... You know, he slides it back in just so that the other knight who's just won a championship down there can have his chance at pulling it out. And uh, I swear I recognize that guy. Well, there were a lot of them in that uh, scene. Yeah. No, the, the, the guy who tries to pull out the sword right then. The older guy, King Leodegrans? Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's played by... Um, oh, he's played by... Uh, Professor X. Oh, yes. That's why. That's why Pat- I'm thinking superheroes. Sir, pa- Sir Patrick Stewart. Oh, yeah. I played should've... that guy. Uh, before this, he was, or actually it was after this, he was in David Lynch's version of Dune. Oh, yes. He was in the revival of a 60s sci-fi show. Oh, okay. That makes sense. What are we doing now? Anyway, um, but he has a wonderful scene where he tries to pull this thing out. <laughs> and we've watched Arthur just slide this thing back down on into the stone like he's reloading a paper towel re- holder. <laughs> and then, nope, no one else can pull it out. And he just pulls it out again to show everyone now that the crowd's gathered to see it happen. And that immediately catalyzes the the <laughs> new conflict. Because there are some who recognize the power of Excalibur, or rather the significance of Excalibur and recognize Arthur as, uh, as King, especially when Merlin and Sir Ector explain that, no, you're not really my son. Merlin gave you to me and told me to raise you as my own. And then Merlin explains, you're actually the son of, of Uther Pendragon. But then there are others who do not want to recognize this foster son of a lesser knight as the King, just because he has this sword. And, Arthur has to essentially take up again with a different frame of mind the cause that Uther had years ago, which is to unite these leaders under a king. And this is also a, a finding chance to say that in, in the movie Excalibur, sword fights are not pretty. No, yeah, this the, does not shy away from the violence inherent in this kind of combat. No, these sword fights are bloody they are brutal there's a lot more fisticuffs because it's not about flurries of flashing blades it's about first guy to get hit with a piece of sharp enough metal is going to either bleed out now or die of infection later because we haven't made proper first aid yet (laughs) it's the middle ages we're in a problematic state there is a whole lot of 
just very rough, muddy, dirty combat, and a lot of heavy suits of armor being, tr- like, not, not, like, the gleaming, pretty suits of armor come later when there's a time of peace, but these are spiky things with guys lumbering around in them. Honestly, if they ever make, like, a Warhammer movie, they need to watch this, because this is how you have lumbering, walking tanks of men. And we're going to have to talk about the design of the armor and weapons and other things when we get to that part. But in terms of this character of of Arthur, I like the fact that they portray him as being naive, but he's he's fit. You can see there's some intelligence there, though he's hasn't been educated to use it very much. But once the fighting starts and he rallies the men that he's got to go and save Patrick Stewart's castle from the people who are anti-Arthur and are, are besieging the, the knight who is, or the king who is pro-Arthur. We see Arthur as a pretty good fighter. First of all, he's like the one guy who's just got a quilted jacket, not in, in armor. So he's moving around more quickly than a lot of these guys. Yeah. But I also got the sense that when he was, uh, was his Brother Kay's squire for for all these years, he was pulling some thirty six chambers stuff. Oh yeah, he was paying attention to how you fight with a sword, even though it wasn't his job. So he knew what to do. Alternate title for this movie: Thirty six Chambers of Merlin. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> oh Ooh. yeah, but absolutely, he's I, like. I, oh. I think we need a new T shirt design. Oh, we might. Oh no, <laughs> we might. What have I? Yes. Oh yes. But he's like climbing up ladders and just like zipping around. He gets he also does get stabbed. Yes. Yeah. And and everyone is like everyone else who isn't an active fighter has like kind of followed what's happening and are watching from like the cliff sides and watching from the, the ramparts in the in the actual castle that's being sieged and everything. And there's a whole lot of like, oh, dang, well, he's gone. Whoa, he's still fighting. <laughs> there's like this like shot reverse shot of everyone just like oh oh," as he does not go down which is part of what we see of him he's not a he doesn't give up he keeps fighting and that's a very big part of the characterization of arthur in this film and yet he resolves this battle not by fighting to the end and slaying the leader of the anti-arthur faction He subdues the leader of the anti-Arthur faction, but rather than imprisoning him or killing him, gives him an opportunity to recognize the importance of Excalibur, the importance of having a king, and I don't want, maybe this is something I shouldn't spoil, but he, he, he gives his enemy a chance to make a choice. And that the fact that he is is a leader who could be more ruthless but chooses not to be changes people's minds somewhat. Yeah, he is a he is leveraging strength and authority in a way that has not been seen. Right. So I I like that bit, and it sets the tone for this is going to be a different kind of kingdom because this is going to be a different kind of king. And it is nice that they have a visual representation you can actually follow along for Arthur during the entire film. Like, you can literally figure out how Arthur is doing as king 
from any single screenshot he's in in this entire film. Because literally, he grows into being a king alongside growing in a pretty awesome beard. And when the, <laughs> and when the kingdom goes bad, the beard gets disheveled. And then when he gets back, it's gray, but it gets neat again. <laughs> so the beard is like a litmus strip. That is true. <laughs> and there's also the the land itself. And Merlin makes this clear yes. that, you know, the the land will thrive as as the king. Excalibur means that the king and the land are one. So yeah, the king and the land and the king's beard, which is I guess part of the land <laughs> and part of the king, they're all one. It is. So don't shave with Excalibur. That's what the, the message is here. Uh yes. But uh, the, the, the land itself, like, they do a really good job of that because this is, they do some dense choreography in wooded and tree areas, but showing kind of everything responding to him. There is this muted tones during the earlier stuff, and then the contrast and the brightness of the green is risen, and it's almost the same, like, ethereal green that Excalibur flashes and then when things go bad, they mute back and go even further gray. And then they turn it up. They use a lot of color grading in this film as symbolism. So even when you don't see, like, trees and nature, you can actually kind of tell because just the world, the atmosphere, the camera is giving you that sense to some extent. And you're mentioning things like the, the fog and the different kind of uh, uh, palettes that we get. That also reminds me of something else that's very important to Merlin, and that is the image of the dragon. Yes. He talks a lot about the dragon, and as the movie goes along, you realize the dragon is, to him, a symbol, but more than a symbol, it's also an embodiment in some way of, of the land and what it represents. And the fog is the breath of the dragon, and nature is, is the dragon. The bark of the trees are the dragon's scales. It's a representation of... The, the animistic mm. druidic world in which Merlin uh, resides, even though that world is going away. When he's first training young Arthur right after he's pulled the sword, he actually has this like little description of like why not to be afraid of it. Because, of course, the dragon could kill you. There's a million ways it could kill you. It doesn't. You're part of it. You're okay. And it's like that just summarizes his mindset completely because it's it's not a lack of fear of death it's more of a an acceptance and a not now and i kind of like that yeah it it is an interesting philosophy that that merlin teaches arthur and that he espouses in general now you get the impression that merlin may or may not be immortal in some way and he just goes to sleep for long periods of time. It's easy not to fear death if you're immortal. But but it's more than that. It's it's his acceptance of the world as it is and his seeking what needs to be done in any given moment. And and he's definitely got a larger image and a plan. He kind of talks about things going like awry or going wrong. He's got this clear idea of how he expects the narrative to go. But when it when it diverges, he'll he'll deal with it. He'll work with what he's given. He, and he definitely deals with that when Arthur almost immediately starts making similar mistakes to his father. In terms of relationships. Right down to, like, allow me to yell at you what will be the plot and 
or part of the plot and part of the issue to you, young boy, right now, early on, as I directly tell you that if you go with that girl, she, of a best friend of yours, and your entire people are going to betray you at some point. You're going to choose that, aren't you? And we watch Arthur not listen to the sentence. <laughs> and that's because in defending Professor X's castle, he also meets Professor X's daughter. Yes. Guinevere, the daughter of Leander Grants. And, of course, falls in love, and eventually they get married. But before they get married is when Arthur meets the other really pivotal character, and that uh, is Lancelot. Ah, uh, yes. The very, very shiny Lancelot. My goodness, this guy. <laughs> After Lancelot joins King Arthur's court, more of the knights are in shinier armor. But gosh, he is absolutely shiny from the get-go. I am amazed we never got a we never accidentally saw a camera or or sound tech reflected <laughs> in Lancelot's armor. I was looking for it. I was so certain I was going to get a shot of boom mic reflected off of this guy's absolutely shining breastplate. It makes me wonder if there are any outtakes in which that was the case. I'm wondering because it is this is a type of shiny you don't do in film pre-CGI. This is wild stuff. And that's part of how the lighting in this movie is so interestingly done. Because it heightens and stylizes everything, and so much of that is done through lighting. There's a lot of this film that in terms of its cinematography and its art style and its set decoration and everything else is a moving version of a lot of the fantasy drawing style you see at the time this there's pages out of this that look like this looks like a page out of a DD book this looks like the illustration splash page before you get into a novel this has that i it's not watercolor completely but it's like that brushed kind of fuzzy slightly impressionistic at times tone to everything where everything's just been heightened by a little bit. There's almost aspects that I see people use as shorthand for, like, the difference between the regular world and Wonderland in Alice in Wonderland depictions, because it's all just cranked up a little bit higher. And that brings to my mind some of the, what are probably influences on this movie. It's an adaptation of... of the Arthurian legend, so of course there's a lot of influence from other depictions of that. But this was made when the Lord of the Rings novels were super popular. Mm. And yet, apart from a couple of animated things, had not been adapted for cinema. Oh, I've seen those And I things. think that, and, and with the popularity of the Lord of the Rings came lots of art about the Lord of the Rings and calendars filled with Brothers Hildebrand paintings and things. And I think there was a lot of influence of that Lord of the Rings. And you mentioned Dungeons and Dragons. It's part of the same world in some ways. A lot of influence on that 70s fantasy art style yeah. in, in this movie. And yet they do things that you can do in a movie with lighting and, and motion and such that you can't do with those paintings. But I see those as ancestors of this. Yeah, I can kind of imagine that. Yeah, it's got, it's got that it's got that sort of flavor to it. 
but it, it it does mean that this movie is beautiful in a lot of its scenes. Even some of those very, very bloody fights are done with this intense action moment kind of visuals. The camera gets up in there. Yeah, even even when what it is depicting is horrifying, there's a beauty to the way it is composed, the way it's shot, the way it's lit. Lancelot is, anyone who knows the story, this movie is definitely playing up like, it plays up Lancelot as cool, but definitely it's going for the the fallible problematic Lancelot. Yes, Lancelot is depicted as extremely, as having an extremely high opinion of himself, but somehow it comes through as honesty rather than vanity. He has an extremely high opinion of his self and his abilities as a knight and a fighter. And it turns out, well, yeah, that's because he's like the best anybody has ever seen. And he's not going around fighting people because he can fight people to prove how cool he is. He's going around fighting people, hoping to find someone who's worth following, worth serving. And eventually he does. Yeah. When... When the giant fight happens and Arthur wields Excalibur against Lancelot and defeats him, Excalibur snaps and kind of, like, absolutely shocks Merlin. And it's kind of nice to see this, you know, bloody, difficult fight where they're both getting hits in on each other. They've fallen down a small cliff into a river. These two guys are having a rough time. When it finally, the final blow strikes, Arthur just drops into a little bit of a of moment of that, like, panicked young squire. Like, yes. that's not supposed to happen. What do I do? And Merlin's just, you broke what can't be broken. I have no answer about that. He's, he's in total shock because for everything he's been taught and everything he's observed, what he's destroyed is a symbol of his kingship. And therefore, if his kingship is broken, not only... Is is he lost? Is his company and his court lost? But the land itself is doomed because it doesn't have a king, and it can't have a king because Excalibur is broken. And it, it's another instance of how important Excalibur is as a character, like you were pointing out. I mean, luckily for him, he had Lady of the Lake roadside assistance who like repairs Excalibur <laughs> right there. She just like, you just like, you just, uh, Merlin's just like. Give Excalibur back to England. Toss it in the water. Okay. Lady of the Lake rises up. Take it? Oh, okay. So Merlin paid the extra forty nine ninety five for the extended repair. Well, well, she's not even in a lake. She's in a river. She went downstream to find where they fought and give it to him. I mean, that's what it seemed like. I mean, but meanwhile, like once Lancelot gets over the apparently blunt force trauma of being knocked unconscious by magic magical explosion that happened he is absolutely like eager labrador retriever you're my king i serve you now you're the only guy to beat me and you can see how his presence among arthur's knights elevates all of them oh yeah and they all now aspire to be better and with his help they defeat the remaining holdouts the remaining anti-arthurian forces and unify england and after that is when they planned the, the building of Camelot and the round table, and it re- achieves its height. And Arthur's kind of more gray utilitarian armor with its like extra spikes and such, and Lancelot's 
gleaming silver with wing aesthetic fins on the side of his helmet. We watch as this little montage happens and all the other knights, their armor is slightly shifting with that. They've got some spikes in places like Arthur. They've got some wing elements and the shininess starts to build like Lancelot's. And by the time they're in this giant, what we finally defeated it all, we're in a circle, united as a group. I'm going to go build a table that's a circle like this to keep us unified. They are, they're unified in this matching uniform of armor in the same way. They look like they are part of the same force because those stylistic elements from these two guys who just met on a bridge, everyone is wearing that now. And this probably is a good point at which to talk some more about some of this design. Mm -hmm. And that is the fact that this movie is pulling together design elements from all different places, all different times. And sometimes I think they were choices made to convey something. And sometimes I think it was, well, what do we have in the costume warehouse that we have access to? Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, there's medieval looking styles in some of the courts and some of the uh the clothes that the women are wearing and the armor this is late late medieval armor that they're depicting it is and they made aluminum reproductions of late medieval armor for the the production of the movie and you know arthur as a mythic character you have people try to figure out when would be the most logical time for any of his story to have taken place and you're talking like around 500 AD. Yeah. And this is, you know, AD 500, and they're uh, wearing armor that was used briefly almost a thousand years later. And yet, it's it's knights in shining armor. That's what the Arthurian story is about. It doesn't have to be, you know, muddy leather because it, quote-unquote, really happened a long time before. This is not trying to be a a historical rooting for our Arthurian legend. This is trying to be like the thing you go to the Ren Fair imagining. Yeah. It's got that same sort of disjointed pop culture filtering in that sense, but it's, it's using that as reference. The it's, it's got knights in shining armor because they are representing knights in shining armor as much as they are being knights and wearing armor that is shiny. And there are other depictions, other adaptations of these legends that that do try to depict what this would have been like in this early post-Roman period. And some of those are really good, but that's not what this movie was trying to do. And I have I have no problem with the over-the-top style decisions that they made. All of the all of the over-the-top style decisions serve the the grandeur of its narrative. And that, that, that's definitely working. So I think we've talked about most of the major players in terms of characters, save for one. Save for one, one. Maybe two. There's Morgana. Oh, Wait. not the one I thought we'd talk. Oh. Who were you going to mention? You've got to mention Morgana first, actually, though. Okay. Before I get to mine. That is, in this version, Arthur's half-sister. Before Egraine's husband, the Duke of Cornwall, was killed, and before Uther and Egraine conceived Arthur. And she like grew up kind of knowing what had happened and knowing who this King Arthur is. And but she is more like Merlin, or aspires to be more like Merlin. She wants to be 
a mage wants to have this knowledge of the world and apparently has studied a great deal. The first scene we see between her and Merlin, it's like she's defending her master's thesis. Oh, yeah. It's like, I can't tell if they were defending theses or like comparing uh, fandom opinions at a convention because there's just <laughs> something about the like, oh, you're into that too? What and about yet, this? What yeah. about that? And yet he's asking her, yeah, do you know what this root is called and what it's good for? Do you know what, what this is or what that is? It's like he's testing her knowledge because she wants to learn more. He wants to assess how much work she's already done and is she ready to learn more? Yeah, and and there is definitely, like, early on it's like, well, you have potential. But there's also a very brilliantly unspoken, and you seem to be a little too preoccupied with the the dangerous parts of this. <laughs> right. It's like, I gotta keep an eye on you just for safety's sake, don't I? And Morgana is played by Helen Mirren. Yes. Probably the first thing I, I saw Helen Mirren is. And, I mean, it's Helen Mirren. She's amazing in this. Um, And brings so many facets to that character. Oh, yeah. This this ambition and intelligence and sexiness and everything that might be a weapon to for this character she is a she is a walking dagger of a character and you're just wondering which which back she will land in first and what she wants is she desperately wants to learn from merlin the charm of making which yeah. we realize is a it's like a mantra it's a phrase that we first hear him use when he's helping uther early in the movie and it took me a while to realize like this is the same phrase and it's like it can be used for whatever merlin is focusing on to be its his intention but it's it's the magic phrase that he is trying to keep secret from morgana and that she desperately wants to know. This is the administrator password for all of England. <laughs> it's like, you want to go in and start changing settings on the nation of England? You need to be able to log in by typing this. <laughs> it's the pseudo command. Exactly. It, it, you know, summon fog. Says the thing. Fog appears, <laughs> does it. You can... It, it's, it's remarkably multi-purpose, but... Getting him to use it is getting harder and harder. And last time he used it, apparently, like, it knocked him out for six months. <laughs> so it's like, this is not... Like, we are immediately given an example of this thing's strength. Not by what it produces, but by what it does to Merlin. And how <laughs> angry he is about doing it. But she's there trying to get it from him. And... This is more of the excellent Merlin characterization, where there's the like this. I I almost remember him saying, "No, you're evil," and he never does. Practically, he yeah. practically does because he's just like, "Stop that! I know what you're gonna do." <laughs> it's like he admires her ability and her ingenuity and her intelligence, but knows that she is absolutely bad news. Oh yeah. You're clever, kid. Don't try that again. And yet, in the end, he does succumb, and he is locked away in the cave, and she learns the charm of the making, and um, thus begins the uh, the downfall. Yes. Meanwhile, uh, Lancelot has met a young boy named Percival, and Percival is 
uh, there as a counterpoint to Lancelot. As Lancelot starts to mess up, Percival steps up, gets knighted, takes position as knight, and starts filling in on the things Lancelot should be doing that he's not. And starts filling in on the things Lancelot should not be doing that he is. <laughs> because, you know, soon after Percival is brought to um, Camelot is when things go awry with the accusations of infidelity between um, uh, cast upon uh, Guinevere and Lancelot and Percival kind of steps in to champion Guinevere. But Percival, to me, is is representing one of the 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 promises of a society under Arthur's rule, which is that your station and your your prospects are not simply matters of your birth. Mm-hmm. And it is possible for a person who is 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 ambitious and who is compassionate and who is observant to to rise by stepping up to do what's right, even if it's probably going to get him killed. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's this aspect of like, I was, I was where you were and you, you are stepping up to be the only man here to speak in this situation. Like, I completely get you, kid. I'm knighting you on the spot. <laughs> and even if I don't need you to fight later, I hold to that. You got knighted. You're oh, a knight now. It's yeah. Like, like it's no, a, no. A you, sacred ceremony. You, you showed... You showed the attitude necessary, and that is more important to be a knight. The the how to swing a sword we'll teach later. Oh, and we have to mention the fact that the person who made the accusations about Lancelot and Guinevere is well. In this version, it's Sir Gawain, and I'm not sure that that makes sense. I don't know. They gave Gawain a bit more of an angry ruffian kind yeah, of style. Yeah, kind of a belligerent is, drunk. Yeah, he, which is, this is not the Gawain from the Sir Gawain of the Green Knight story. That no, I that's not the characterization. Oh, but he's played by Liam Neeson. Ah, yes. Uh, of uh, probably most famously in the movie Krull. That's where we know him from. I have a very specific set of glaives. But I mean, uh, he he does a very good job, and he is for for being what he's playing. But it's just not what I expect for that character yeah. name. I do think that for some of these, they just had a list of the names of of knights of the Round Table, and when they needed a new character, they just pulled one off the list. Oh yeah, I mean, for all we know, uh, Gawain is like their version of being named Steve. <laughs> it's like oh we've got we've got we've got twenty of them I don't know and there's no Galahad in this movie no Galahad I'm really surprised and I can understand that it's not a role that you need to tell the story that they're telling here yeah but yeah it, it's an omission that you'll notice if you've seen or read a lot of our three and stuff but from there we have to go into the after this big fight and the the defense of but we learn the actual still going on betrayal that is happening and then the capture of merlin there is the downfall of the kingdom in that sense it and it that's withers. because of the second time that arthur loses excalibur yes the first time he got it back right away after it broke during his fight with uh, with lancelot but even though they weren't actually fooling around they were just i guess busting after each other before the trial by combat after that yeah Guinevere and, and Lancelot are together. 
and Arthur finds out. He he goes to where they are sleeping out in the in the countryside, in the kind of place where Merlin seems to be most comfortable. In that it's it's not in a, in a castle somewhere. Yeah, it's. But he could have he could kill them, but instead he plunges Excalibur into the earth between them, so they see it when they wake up later. But he also leaves Excalibur behind, so he doesn't have the sword, which means he doesn't ha- means he doesn't have the position of king, which means the land doesn't have a king, and everything goes to pieces. Mm-hmm. And so the land starts to 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 wither. Arthur starts to wither. This connection is broken, and very very clearly he has called out the two uh, Lancelot and Guinevere as you guys did this. And set me up, and I chose this as my response, but, like, putting the sword there was definitely a a move. But this leads to, how do you fix the kingdom? How do you reclaim what is lost? And that is where the quest for the grail comes in. In this movie, that does kind of seem to come out of nowhere. Yeah. It's like, everything is terrible, everything's still terrible, and then suddenly one day Arthur says, we need the one thing that can fix it. We must find find that which is lost. You must seek the Holy Grail. It's like, it's like after the kingdom got to, like, England got to a certain state, it started to run uh, repair.exe in the form of Grail. Right. And sets this up as a, a... a mission for everybody. Yeah, well, this is DLC that uh, it wasn't part of the original game. Oh, goodness. Actually, it kind of feels like that because <laughs> honestly, this movie, like, it, it it reached a climax and then the Grail section is just kind of interminable, I'll say. It is interminable and it is also where the movie moves more into supernatural horror oh, yeah. than the rest of it has been because these knights go out and seek all over the world, it seems, in uh, for, for the Holy Grail. And they're doing this for more than a decade, and many of them die. Where in the world are all these knights coming from? Like, my goodness, the, the, the sheer number of... Like, we saw a, a, a kind of mid-sized Knight of the Round Table group before, and then the, knight, the number of dead knights that they keep coming across... In a, well, someone's been here before and it didn't go well. They keep doing this. And I I swear I would take a tally because there are more knights who have not made it back than I would have expected. And they they must be running low at this point. And Hell. there's the tree full of knights, which might be the, the most famous image or most memorable image from this movie. Oh, yeah. And, and also there are a bunch of knights who are, have not died but are no longer serving Arthur. Yeah. Because they've gone into the servant, uh, the service of Morgana and her son, Mordred. Her son by her half-brother, Arthur. Yeah, because in a parallel to the way that Arthur was formed, Morgana, now with uh, the, the command codes for, for causing magic, pulls an illusion switcheroo and makes sure that she would have a a kid because that would give an heir to the line that she's got control of. And this kid is really creepy. 
Yes, yes. A creepy little kid who is luring knights to their deaths and is essentially being groomed by Morgana to grow up to be the magical, all-powerful king of England. And it's also interesting that he's got a very Greco-Roman kind of outfit and style. He's got this kind of like Roman sculpture of Zeus kind of style helmet and armor that's very different than all the other knights we've seen. That's a good point. It is kind of that Roman anatomical looking. I mean, he's got like a armor and such. He's got this gold plate armor that has like embedded abs drawn into it. So it is it is very effective to make him seem just odd and unnatural in this setting because it's a completely different design. Yeah. It is it's not the druidic nature focused culture that Merlin represents and that is dying off. It's not the uh the kingly Christendom that Arthur and his court represent. It is different. Yeah. When, Where when, is this coming from? When he's grown up during all of this and the, the quest is still going on, he rides in saying, like, I'm your son, son give me the kingdom. He's, it, it, it looks like he just rode in from Clash of the Titans to, to try to take over this movie <laughs> instead. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? So that's the third movie we've got here. We've got Excalibur. We've got whatever movie. Nicole Williamson is in, but I want to see more of it. Oh, and we've got this this swords and sandals epic that uh, the kid is from. Exactly, but he's he's pulling this very different vibe about the entire thing. But he's still got this, you know, dramatic, creepy air the entire time. And well, because he is a dramatic, creepy air, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I think I broke Ian briefly there. You did. <laughs> but as the knights finally find out what to do about the Holy Grail and kind of what was lost, which seems to be as much like Arthur's spirit about being king as it is physically a Holy Grail. Because there's a whole lot of like, once you accept what you're actually searching for, you get teleported around rather quickly. Yeah, we we uh, it it is Percival who eventually oh, yeah. finds the Grail, but he doesn't find it physically. It's when he gets near it when he is in these these states of supernatural transcendence, when he is near death, or when he has having some tremendous realization, and and it is a symbol of a spiritual state. It's not a physical object they're finding. Although apparently it becomes a physical object once you find it. <laughs> oh, 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 great. Going into dream worlds, finding importance in the manifestation of gold objects and then leaving and they somehow become physical things. I'm having Persona 5 flashbacks. Give me a second. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he, he as, as we watch the Arthurian Knights Percival like repair Arthur... Uh, Merlin, who has been stuck in crystalline cold storage because of Morgana all this time, just decides to absolutely ham it up so hard Morgana messes herself up. <laughs> oh, just, yeah. He gets he, to come back as a force ghost. He gets the force ghost. He shows up and he's just he doesn't win by like actually stopping her. He wins by just like, oh, wow, you did pretty well for yourself. 
What'd you do? Use that thing like how many times? Well, that's pretty awesome. I mean, look at that. You got you, you must have that thing memorized by now, right? It's like, oh yeah. <laughs> he, he just absolutely compliment bombs her into self-destruction because the moment she says it again, he can snatch it back and seal away the powers and everyone turns around to say, hey, where's our magical lady? Who's this old lady? Then the, the creepy air immediately is like, nope, get out of this tent. Kills her. And and that is what leads to in the final battle between Arthur and his small force. But he does have Excalibur back because he sees Guinevere again and she's kept it safe all this time. So he is king again. Oh, yeah. And uh, but them versus the larger force that Mordred has. Eventually, there's nobody left alive except Percival. And yet Arthur has has saved the kingdom from Mordred. But it's cost them their King Arthur. Oh, yeah. You you want to throw another mythology on top of the pile in here. This is a very no one survives in this this court and this hall except for like one guy and some people to rebuild in a very Ragnarok style story. And I do find myself wondering what this is trying to say, because we've talked about ages passing away and giving way to others. And we've got the the uh the old ways that merlin represents and he's acknowledging that those are passing and it's now it's now the age of men represented by arthur and yet in the end arthur dies is this representing that the age that arthur represented is passing away and if so what is taking its place or is is arthur's death a sign that yeah this age of men is here in full, and the fact that people like King Arthur do not survive it is a hallmark of this new age. But Merlin actually gets to say, like the like my age is ending, the age of man is here. He he leaves. He says farewell. I am gone as well. And the final conflict moment of the entire story becomes. Arthur telling Percival to get rid of Excalibur, to give it back to the land. That's key, yeah. He's giving it back to England. <laughs> Which is kind of fun because it involves him riding out what seems to be a pretty good distance away from the battle to this lake. And then not being able to do it. <laughs> riding all the way back. And Arthur is still sitting there dying. <laughs> and it's like, yes. I couldn't do it, sir. Uh, it like, I like the fact that it starts with Arthur saying, you know, and what did you see when you cast the sword into the lake? And Percival's like, um, nothing. <laughs> like, okay, okay, I couldn't do it. <laughs> go do it. <laughs> it's like, and I can just imagine, like, cutting away from this long ride Percival's been having to Arthur just like, Still sitting there, just not dying yet, waiting to know that it's done. So, so it's one of those climaxes that it's not fully satisfying. No, and yet it it is uh it's setting itself up as a prelude to something else because essentially it's Arthur saying when England needs it again, needs a king who wields it again, Excalibur will still be here and it will be back. Yeah, it, it's kind of like it, England, if you want to give this sword, you can give it in that sense. Right. But he he's acknowledging what Merlin had just told him, that this is over. And if if Merlin is gone and I was connected to this via the magical sword, 
maybe the sword should be gone too. And it kind of ends actually with Percival just like standing there on the beach like, what now? (laughs) Kind of one man standing alone now very confused is how it rather abruptly ends in that sense. And that's the, the, the unanswered question of the movie. What does happen next is... Does Percival attempt to rebuild anything of what Arthur created? Does Percival go off and become a monk somewhere? Yeah, there's there's no knowing in, in terms of the way this movie is presented. But it is a very final without being finished. Yeah. Huh. Maybe we but, should... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that, that kind of does lead into some of our final questions, doesn't it? It does. So, for a movie... Screen or no screen? No screen. Really? Yes. Okay. We have just gone on to this long thing discussing this film and everything else, and I'm just going to say this, though. This movie is paced so slowly. It was a little bit of a slog to get through. I enjoyed a lot of bits of it, but I was not happy with the whole experience of sitting down to watch it. Maybe if it was broken up, maybe if you screen it as chunks, break it up on those dividing lines, but watching it in one sitting actually was not as grand a process because the heavy, serious weight it gave everything in it, actually I felt to just be deadening by the end. It was it was like it had a thumping bass for so long I got numb. Really? Yeah. I mean- it does seem like a long watch, but it's not that long a movie. It's a little over two hours. I know. I but, like want to watch this in 30-minute chunks and let myself recover between them. Interesting. So I, I, I guess I could say screen, but it's got that huge caveat of how you do it. You've got to do this like a TV episodes instead. It's not a, it's not a sit down and binge it kind of movie for me. Oh, now, I, I definitely say this is a, a screen and I like the way that this movie just pulls me in and I live there for however long it takes and it ends. And I wonder, I, I, I feel like I have to look at the calendar and find out how many months I've been under. And yet I was, was engaged for all of that time. I never found myself looking at my watch. Oh, wow. Because there's always either dialogue to think about or action to look at or or shots just to, to marvel at what they look like. And uh, and I do want to mention how I saw this movie for yes. the first time. This is another entry in the Midnight HBO Film Festival. Oh, goodness. <laughs> because I think my your, your Uncle Jim saw this when he was away at college, and he and I were going to go see it when he was home on a break, and my parents weren't crazy about that, and they asked him about the movie and looked into it, and... They decided that it, I really shouldn't be going to a movie theater to see this at that age. It had violence, it had sex, and it was 20th century America. The sex was a bigger concern than the violence. And so I didn't get to see it in a movie theater. And and nobody else in the house apparently wanted to see it when it was on HBO a few months later. And without necessarily asking anybody, I arranged to watch it like on a early on a Saturday morning 
when it started on like a one one a.m. screening. So I did kind of darko this. You darko moded this, okay? <laughs> so yeah, I was watching this movie starting at one a.m. Oh my goodness! In the basement where it was kind of dark, very close to the TV because I had to keep the sound low. And there's a certain dreamlike quality to this movie as is. Yeah. Imagine how that's amplified when it starts at 1 a.m. and you're watching it under weird conditions very close to the picture. Oh, my goodness. Talk about immersive. Yeah. And there's something of that experience that comes back to me whenever I see this again. So I like the fact that it is a, a deep and profoundly immersive experience. It's just a wild way to watch this film. <laughs> it definitely changes the nature of a movie. Oh, yeah. First, first see it that way. Okay. Hmm. Our second question is tricky with this one, too, though. It is, and that is revive, reboot, or rest in peace. And this is kind of the entire Arthurian story. Yeah, it's a tough question when you're dealing with an adaptation and essentially something... That's an adaptation of something that is as big as this is. Oh, yeah. So I guess, like, I've got grand opinions about how I want to see Arthurian legend approached in modern cinema overall. But I'm not sure if that applies right here. So I'm going to say that. But I'm also going to say what I think about doing the story as a whole like this first. I think that there could be an interesting version of doing the whole history of arthur kind of story like this as one thing so i'm going to say uh reboot a revival is just writing a brand new story about post-arthurian stories i guess well or the story of percival afterwards well a revival would have under our terms would have to be something in this same continuity so any of the changes they made for the sake of this any of the the choices they made about what things mean, they would there would have to be some continuity. And a revival can be a prequel, can be a sequel, but it would have to be in the same continuity. The Adventures of Merlin. <laughs> I could... I'm not sure how you could cast somebody other than Nicole Williamson to play Mer this, this particular Merlin. But a prequel about Merlin and about the time before things changed... The, Earl, the, the youth of the dragon. That would be interesting. I'm sorry, Nicolas Cage could play this Merlin. <laughs> you know, I think you are correct. Okay. <laughs> I he, think you are right. He could play this type of Merlin pretty well, actually. <laughs> so that's the only kind of uh, revival that I could imagine. Yeah. It would be a Merlin-oriented prequel. Yeah. I can't imagine any kind of a sequel because once Arthur is gone, again, what do you have? The story of whatever it is that happens to Percival? Not going to be as interesting. It's not going to be as epic. So I don't think there's any way to make a, a sequel to this movie, this version of the story. But a reboot would just be another adaptation of the Arthurian legends. Yeah. And if you're doing the whole chronology of Arthur... As an entire story, I could see that being done again. There's a lot of ways to interpret this. There's a lot of ways to take Arthurian mythos and use it. And I'd be interested in seeing someone else try this. Use different techniques. Use a different tilt. Change your metaphors a little. 
because there's this is a malleable, workable story in that sense. It has different meanings you can pull from different angles. And I think there's still something there for it. I'm tempted to say reboot, but I would want to maybe clarify what I mean by a reboot, because there have been plenty of other depictions of the Arthurian legends. I mean, there's a TV series about Merlin. There is um, the movie First Night, which is kind of a romantic drama, mostly about the Arthur Lancelot Guinevere triangle. There was a movie, I think it might have just been called King Arthur, about that that was about Arthur, but it was really depicting it as a immediately post-Roman Britain dealing with the power vacuum. And uh, and there was one not long ago that was more of a action-adventure movie kind of thing. I would like to see a really driven and thoughtful filmmaker make a new adaptation of the Arthurian legend for a new generation that has the 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 philosophical depth and the the artistic ambition that this movie had that wants to be as big as John Borman's Excalibur was that wants to explore the the clash and and handoff of different philosophies of and ways of living in the world and being with the world. And I don't think we've seen that since this Excalibur. But I think I think it can be done and it doesn't have to ask the same exact philosophical questions. It certainly doesn't have to answer them in the same ways. But I want a movie that that raises questions in the same way. Oh yeah. I'm I'm absolutely. Even if I found this long in its presentation despite being relatively short, that's because it was dense, because it had that weight, and I'm just finding that weight got a little too much with how this was presented, but that's not a bad thing about being able to present this this stylized, heavy, poignant metaphor to film in that sense. So I'm with you on the idea of like something else can be able to pull that sort of energy and presence and use this again. And since we now have this movie, maybe next time I watch it, I'll start it up at one thirty in the morning and see if it has any of that same experience left in it. Oh, yeah. While we're talking about um, things connected to this movie, though, yeah. we should mention the fact that there's two different documentaries about the making of this film. Oh, right, right. There's one from 81. And there's one from 2013. So it's definitely still within the ideas and the things being discussed of film and cinematography. So maybe there's more of a chance for those other things to come out if this is still being looked at as a reference point like that. Oh, that's good to hear. I think we need to to watch those too. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe this is the point at which we can wrap up. Uh, for this episode, but we will be back in a couple of weeks with uh, with more tales of 20th century media. Uh, where can they find you online, Dad? Oh, yeah. So in the meantime, you can find me. Uh, you can look for me as by Matthew Porter. So you can find me on Twitter at by Matthew Porter. And you can also go to by and you'll find links to other things that I'm doing online. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found as item crafting on Twitter, as item crafting live on Twitch and at itemcrafting.com. And you can find the podcast, uh, you can find us on Twitter as IMMPcast, but you can also find us at immproject.com, and that's where you'll find all of our past episodes, 
uh, and where you will find links to our Discord. We'd love to hear from you there or on the contact page on the website. What's your favorite Arthurian adaptation? Or what did you think of John Borman's version here? How shiny do you may do you polish up your suit of armor? <laughs> You'll also find links to our uh, our shop if you like coffee mugs, t-shirts, other fun things, you can find them there. And you'll find a link to our Patreon. Thanks very much to anybody who's able to support us there. We really appreciate it. You help uh, keep the podcast going. You do get additional uh, audio content as a Patreon supporter. And if you support us at the movie club level, you get a surprise DVD in your mail periodically. But for now, uh, that's all. We'll be back uh, with, uh, with another episode in a few weeks. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.